Hey friends, Mariah Keener here, the Director of Art and Worship here at South Bend City Church. Before we get into this week's teaching, we wanted to update you on some important things happening in the life of our community. We've been talking for several weeks about the Tribune Project, our future home in the heart of downtown South Bend. A quick recap, our lease at Studebaker 112 ends in June of next year, and after a year of discerning and searching to find a new home, the clearest, most viable option is the old South Bend Tribune Printing Press. We won't get into all of the nitty-gritty logistics right now, but if you are interested in hearing more about it, give a listen to our Tribune Project podcast episodes or head over to our website and click the button that says Pursuing Our New Home. Over the last few weeks, we've been talking a lot about what a future in that building would look like and then discerning our personal financial commitments to the project. Today, I'm so excited and honored and blown away to announce that a total of $1,555,040 from 182 individuals and families has been committed to seeing our new home become a reality. That is a staggering number of people deeply invested in seeing a place of grace and peace live in the downtown ecosystem. Now, I want to pause for a moment and thank many of you podcast listeners who live both near and far for the contributions that you have made to this project. It's not lost on us that you, while you might not be gathering with us in person, that you've committed to being generous towards a community of grace and peace, not only for the city of South Bend, but for our world. Thank you for walking alongside of us in this project. Now, we've mentioned in previous updates that there are several iterations of what the project could look like. And in conversations with architects and contractors, we've been made aware that we actually have until the fall to decide which version of the project to do. So we promise to keep you updated on this process, and you can visit our website at any time to refresh yourselves on the details of the project, view updates, or to make a financial commitment. Finally, this weekend we had the opportunity to celebrate and pray over our lead pastor, Jason Miller, as he enters into his sabbatical. Jason will spend the next three and a half months resting and rejuvenating as we have the opportunity to celebrate and learn from wonderful teachers and leaders in our community. Join us in praying for Jay, or if prayer is a word that doesn't work for you, sending well wishes his way. Okay, now let's jump into Jason's last sermon before his sabbatical, one that seeks to address questions centered around a seemingly broken world. Is evil the strongest, most powerful resource, or does love actually win in the end? Uh, Thank you. Some of you are thinking, oh no, this is the preacher's last Sunday for three and a half months. Is this going to be a long sermon? (laughs) No, don't worry. But it is Easter, and we have to say something um, about resurrection. Uh, Today I have in mind um, a group of people uh, from many centuries ago who I suspect were asking a lot of the same questions that we've been asking for the last two or three years in the world today. Uh, We've been asking the kinds of questions that you ask when war rages. We've been asking the kinds of questions that you ask when you watch in real time as a madman inflicts um, death and suffering on the men, women, and children of a neighboring nation for reasons that defy understanding. Uh, We've been asking the kinds of questions that you ask when disease creates a pandemic and millions of lives are lost and a bunch of other lives are broken down by all of the pressures of pandemic life, whether those pressures are economic or um, mental health or family systems 
or political. We've like felt all of these breaking points, right? We've been asking the kinds of questions we ask when mental health issues skyrocket among the general populace. Uh, we've been asking the kinds of questions that you ask when the world breaks, right? And sometimes it feels like the world, the big global thing, just isn't working, right? And then sometimes it feels like your world is the thing that is broken. And it's very personal. And that you feel it in your home or in your relationships or in your own mental health or in your spirit. It just can feel like the world breaks. And we ask like certain kinds of questions, don't we? Like I, I think when everything is breaking, we ask questions. And sometimes we don't name these, but they're in our spirit. Like we ask like, is this actually the way things like are? Is this just the, the bedrock reality of things? Is entropy the ultimate law of the universe that things just slowly fall apart? I mean, is that just the way this works? Is evil actually the strongest, most powerful resource in the world? It can feel that way sometimes when everything is, is breaking. It can feel almost as if um, like all of our aspirations for hope and joy and love and peace, all the work that we put into healing and wholeness, like all of that, it can feel a little bit like we're standing in front of a dam with a crack in it and we're putting our pinky in the crack thinking that that will stop the tidal wave that's about to come over us and that in those waters are dark and difficult things. It can feel that way sometimes, right? Um, this is not an uncommon human experience to wonder if at the bedrock of reality is evil and entropy, and if all of our aspirations for hope and joy and peace and healing and wholeness, to wonder if all of that is ultimately naive. Now, the group I'm thinking about, I suspect they uh, worked through these painful questions because of the story that we know about them and what they had experienced. The group I'm talking about are the, the closest friends and followers of Jesus who for three years, I think, clearly had the experience of hope embodied. The, the, the things he said and did just kept reinforcing this growing, this, this uprising hope within them that maybe the ultimate word on things is good. Maybe the ultimate word on things is beauty. Like maybe the ultimate word on things is love. And it seems that it's not just the things Jesus said, but the things he did. It left a trail of healing behind him wherever he went. That he had this way of cutting through the noise and the double speak and speaking the truth in places where everybody was obfuscating the truth. He had this way of including people who were ostracized. He had this way of seeing the divine image in every kind of person the rich, the poor, the insiders, the outsiders, those who maintained their religious performances and those who couldn't get their religious act together. He just had this way of seeing that divine image in every kind of person. And I suspect for three years, this sort of um, rising hope was within them that maybe this is actually the way things are. So that when Jesus said things like, if you build your life on this kind of hope, you're building wisely. If you build your, 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 your life on this vision of reality, it will ultimately pan out to have been a good investment. He says these things and does these things for three years. I suspect their hope grows and grows and grows. And then there's that day when their world breaks and they see him torn from them and torn down in front of them. Where the one who had spoken of enemy love was surrounded by his enemies and dragged away and crucified. Where the one who spoke of the fidelity of friendship watched as all of his friends ran away. I, I can imagine that that moment for them was the moment the world broke and their world broke. And perhaps they felt foolish for believing for a moment that hope and truth and beauty and goodness and love are actually the way things are. 
And so uh, with all of that backdrop, um, this is one of the reasons Easter matters. Because it's not, it's not just a question about what happened, although I'm going to get to that in a moment. It's also just a question about like, what is ultimately real. Is, is evil the, the most ultimate measure of reality or is goodness? Is selfishness the most ultimate reality or is love? Is self-protectionism and greed and van are, are these the way things actually are? Is this the way that we win? Or is vulnerability and, and belonging with one another, is that the way the world actually is at its deepest, most bedrock reality? These questions are raised when the world breaks and they're raised on the day that Jesus is torn away from them and torn down in front of them. And uh, it seems that the answer there is, yeah, ultimately it's all evil and entropy. And of course, the really terrifying thing about that message is if that's the way things are, then you might as well go along with it to get along, right? Like if that's the way things really are, then why resist it, <laughs> right? But then of course, um, after a few dark days, having seen their friend torn away from them and torn down in front of them, we turn to the story of Easter. I want to read this to you from Matthew chapter 28. This is uh, the story that we celebrate today. After the Sabbath at dawn on the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary went to look at the tomb. There was a violent earthquake for an angel of the Lord came down from heaven and going to the tomb, rolled back the stone and sat on it, which I always thought was kind of a baller move. The sitting on it part, right? <laughs> his appearance was like lightning and his clothes were white as snow. The guards were so afraid of him that they shook and became like dead men. And the angel said to the women, do not be afraid, for I know that you are looking for Jesus who was crucified. He is not here. He is risen, just as he said. Come and see the place where he lay. And then go quickly and tell his disciples, he has risen from the dead and is going ahead of you into Galilee. There you will see him. Now I've told you. So the women hurried away from the tomb, afraid yet filled with joy, and they ran to tell his disciples. Suddenly Jesus met them. Greetings, he said. And they came to him and clasped his feet and worshiped him. And then Jesus said to them, don't be afraid. Go and tell my brothers to go to Galilee. There they will see me. So the thing about this story is it, it sort of like leaves you to work with it for a moment. It gives you the kind of raw details of their experience and leaves you to wrestle with what it might mean. But what I'm proposing is that this might mean that after evil exhausts every resource it has against Jesus, after evil gives everything it has to defeat Jesus, it is found wanting. And the love and the life and the power and the goodness of God that Jesus had been talking about is found to actually overwhelm all of the evil that came against him. That there, like, there might be a moment there when you think it really is just evil and entropy. At the bedrock of reality, this is the way things really are. But then if you keep going in the story, if you hang with it long enough to see this resurrection, you might discover, not just with your brain, but with your body and your heart and your life and your experience, that love is the ultimate operating system of reality and it will actually have the final word. And that any life invested in love, any life given to this same life that Jesus was talking about, is a life that will find itself raised up too. This is either the most important and interesting thing that's ever happened in history or it doesn't matter at all. I think those are the two options. And a lot of that has to do with like whether you think it really happened. So I thought for a moment it would be really important to just like reason with one another about this event. Um, we, we, I, I said it earlier, we call ourselves a community of believers and doubters and everybody who's a bit of both. 
And um, in this family, you will find people uh, from the widest possible spectrum of beliefs and opinions about this event or like other matters of faith. Um, and by the way, I have been at every point on that spectrum at different points in my life. You're in good company here, wherever you are on that spectrum. But I do want to reason with you for a moment about it. So let's leave the preaching behind. Let's just pretend that we're like out for a pint tonight or we're like hanging out in the dorm, you know, having one of those like sophomore college discussions that always happens in dorm rooms, you know. Um, I'll often like find myself out with friends for a drink and at some point the actual quote is like, Jay, come on, really? The resurrection? And then we'll talk about it. And I, I just want to talk with you for a moment, um, not to like try to like manipulate anybody or put any pressure or, or guilt on anyone, regardless of like where you stand on this question, but I do want to reason with you about it for a moment. And I want to do that from two different places. One you might call analysis and one you might call experience. Let's talk about analysis for just a moment. Uh, the thing about this resurrection, about Jesus actually being raised up out of that tomb, is that I actually think it makes more sense to believe that it did happen than it didn't. And that might sound crazy. Let me just kind of talk you through where I'm coming from and you can see if this stands up for you at all. Um, it is the most rational, basic thing in the world to think that in the universe we live in, effects have causes, right? I mean, that's just kind of basic. Like we live in a world where, where we see an effect, we assume a cause, right? We may not know what the cause is. We may not have visibility to the cause. But where we see something happening in the world, we usually assume that there's a cause behind it, right? This is just kind of basic reasoning 101. Think about a tsunami, a massive tidal wave in the ocean. Think about when that surface of water erupts with a wall of power and force that moves forward. Think about the, a tsunami out in the, on the, in the ocean. Now, long before we like, understood what was happening on the ocean floor with tectonic plates and earthquakes, we still might have asked what is causing this, right? But we would assume something is moving that wall of water. And of course, now today we know that deep under the surface, there on the ocean floor, that when a tsunami erupts at the top of the ocean, there's probably a shift in the plates on the bottom of the ocean that moved all that water forward, right? I mean, this is just basic cause and effect. And throughout the universe, when we try to explore phenomena, we see effects and then we theorize causes, right? Um, my best historical understanding of what happened in the first century after this event, with the birth of the church and the awakening of a never-before-seen revolutionary community of belonging requires a kind of cause that's commensurate with that effect. I'm not trying to use fancy words, that's just the best language I can come up for it. Something happened in the first century to make possible a way of being in the world with one another that has never been seen before. And I don't, I don't think I'm like on shaky ground here. I think most historians, regardless of where they're coming from on faith commitments, would tell you something happened in the first century that we've never seen before, where human beings from across an entire spectrum of identity groups and social classes and religious backgrounds and ethical sensibilities, Jew, Gentile, slave, free, something happened to create this way of universally belonging to one another that's never been seen before. Like something got set loose in the first century. Something got awakened in the first century. And I think if you, if you don't think the resurrection happened, I'm not like, here to argue with you or like shame you for that. I do think it's, it's, um, it raises lots of questions about what else could have possibly given birth to that, especially if the founder of this movement ended up being shown to have just been naive. 
If it turns out that everything he said about laying down your life, if everything that he said about God giving God's life to this world, if all that ran into the dead end when evil had the final word in his life, I think you're left wondering what was it that gave birth to this thing? Like what's the cause behind this tidal wave of, of social transformation and mutual belonging that was set loose then? Now, I know there are other accurate ways of also describing the history of the church, okay? I understand the history of the church is a complicated, problematic thing in many ways. I, I'm not, like, denying that, but I'm just saying something in its most raw, beautiful, authentic, original form was set loose there. The world had never seen anything like it before, and for 2,000 years, at its best, that movement has been giving birth to life and healing and belonging in unexpected ways. And uh, I could go on and on, we could spend another hour talking about other angles on this, but from the analytical place, I actually think it makes more sense to believe it happened than it didn't. And some of you would say like, well, yeah, but resurrections don't happen. I would say, yeah, but that's called a circular argument. <laughs> You're like, well, I don't believe in the resurrection because resurrections don't happen. Yeah, like that's just gonna get you failed out of your freshman logic class, you know what I mean? Like, um, there are reasons to not believe it and reasons to believe it, but from the analytical place, I think, um, as bizarre as it might sound, I actually think it makes sense to believe that this thing happened 2,000 years ago. That's the analytical perspective. Let me talk about experience for a moment because the other thing that perhaps matters more is not what happens in our brains when we step back from it and we just kind of like poke around on it, but rather when we get into our bodies and our hearts and our actual lives and experiences. And the other thing is like for the past 2,000 years, a lot of people have had an experience that they could only describe as this resurrected Christ like meeting them in life somehow like actually showing up in their life somehow. And again, I know that might sound woo-woo um, or strange. Uh, I can just tell you in my own life, there have just been a few moments. Um, I don't live in this experience every day, by the way. I'm not like floating out of here today. Like, but I've had, a, I've had moments where the best language I have, the truest thing I could say, is that this same Christ that I meet in the pages of the Gospels has somehow like met me in my life. Um, and the language of the resurrected one is like fitting language to describe what I have experienced. And uh, around the world and for 2,000 years, others have had their own stories to tell about that experience. Um, and the reason I turn toward this for a moment is because again, I think it, it, it's either the most important thing that has happened or this story doesn't matter at all. That's what I really think. If this story ends up just being another story where evil has the last word, where violence has the last word. If this ends up being another story that just goes like that, well then I don't know that it has much to say to us. But if this is a story where after evil has exhausted everything it has, it has unloaded its entire arsenal, and then after it has given everything it has to defeat this, if it's true that love had more to say, that love had more power to raise him up, then I think that really matters for years like the ones that we have just lived through. I think it really matters because there all of us have days, right? You have those days when you sense these two currents in your life. There's the current that is dragging you toward brokenness, toward defeat. It's the one that's wrecking your marriage and causing you to struggle with your addiction and making it harder and harder to live for others and to live for love. There's that current that we all feel pulling us that direction. But then there's, there's that other wind that blows sometimes. And I don't know anybody that hasn't, at least in some moments in their life, discovered that there seems to be some grace, some generosity, something beyond us that shows up for us and helps us walk in better, more healing directions. And when you have felt both of those currents pulling you in two different directions, and you have to ask yourself, what do you believe is ultimate? 
What do you believe is the truest thing about reality? I think the resurrection is here to tell you everything compelling you toward love, everything compelling you toward healing and wholeness, that, that's actually the bedrock truth of reality, and you are close to it when you sense those things. Um, we have been through a lot the last few years. If you're weary or brokenhearted, you're not crazy. And yet, if you're hopeful, I don't think you're crazy. If you think that in spite of some of the hard things we have seen, you have also noticed some beautiful things, I think you have. If, if in spite of all the things that have torn us apart in the last couple of years, you also sense us being called toward one another again, I don't think you're crazy. Because I think there was a bedrock reality that Jesus called the kingdom of God that has always been there and will always be there. And it shows up in unexpected ways, even when our lives are broken and the world is falling apart. And even when our own lives are torn down, even when we find ourselves dragged away toward an end that we do not desire, somehow there is more to the story. Uh, it's also been the case that for 2,000 years, um, people have come to believe that Jesus' death and resurrection is ours, too. That somehow we are being grafted into that same story. That in the days when evil takes us down and out, when entropy seems to have the final word in our own lives, that we're being grafted into a story that says, it could be the end, but it's not the end. Like, it could, it could take you down, but it will not take you out. And that we, too, are being raised uh, by the power of that life that Jesus was always talking about and demonstrating. Um, like, this is a story for all of us. Uh, and today, in particular, it's a story for those who are being baptized. Uh, we have a, a few members of our community today who are going to be baptized. It's actually the tradition of the church throughout the last 2,000 years for Easter to be a day for baptism. And so we have a few in our community who will enter uh, the baptism pool in a moment. Uh, we're going to ask them a few questions. And I just wanted to share these with you briefly and just say a word or two about the things that they're saying yes to so you can understand uh, the commitment that they are making and because baptism is a chance for the rest of us to kind of think about our own relationship to this story. So let me just briefly show you these before uh, we invite them into the pool to be baptized. The first question we'll ask them is, have you decided to surrender your life and heart to God for God to live God's life in you and through you? Now let me just observe, that's an absurd question. <laughs> Except it's all over the story that Jesus is telling. It's all over everything he's saying, that God wants to actually live God's life in you and through you. He gives these blessings for the poor in spirit and the brokenhearted and those who have lost things and those who are aching for things to be made right within them or around them. These are all the kinds of people and all the kinds of experiences that tell us that God is far away. And he says, no, God wants to give God's life to you. God wants to give the kingdom of God to you. Your life, a vessel for the life of God in the world. And these are people who are saying, yeah, I open my heart to that. I surrender to that. We'll ask them this next question. Do you trust that God and Christ has forgiven you of all the ways in which you've rejected the life of God? Um, the church is often at its worst when it thinks its job is to tell you all the reasons you should be afraid that God won't forgive you. The church is at its best when we remember what Jesus showed us which is that even when God is being crucified, he speaks out loud and says, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. But that is deep in the heart of God, not to wreak vengeance against us, but to forgive us. And so we want to make sure that the people being baptized own that. Yes, there's grace in this story. And then the third question we'll ask, will you commit yourself to following Jesus in this new life he gives, walking in community and growing with others who follow him as a student and disciple? 
They'll say yes to that. And then because this is about community, we all have a part to play. So after we've heard them answer those three questions, we're going to respond as a church with this. Let's practice it once. Here we go. We've heard your confession. We affirm your decision. And we will walk with you in this new life. Yeah, so we'll say that. And then we'll baptize them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. When they come up out of the water, I think it would be very fitting that we celebrate them, cheer for them, and send some love their direction as they take this step in community, right? Awesome, cool. Uh, that's my last sermon before my sabbatical. Uh, let's... Uh, Mariah and Zach and the team uh, are going to lead us in some song. Um, as they do that, uh, if you're able, will you stand to your feet? Uh, we'll stand and sing for a bit. Those who are being baptized will head out that way to prepare, and then we'll be back out here in a minute.